chapter to the Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, I think the page number is coming up, 1155. Uh, We'll be mainly looking at 13, chapter 13. uh, But I'd like to begin the reading in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So let's uh, look together uh, as we read uh, the word of God to us this morning. So we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse uh, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, then teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So, now, faith, Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, may the Lord have his blessing as we seek to understand that passage together this morning. 
As we approach the end of 2019 and make our way into 2020, I thought it would be helpful for us to uh, reflect upon the theme of now and then this morning. I think most of us tend to focus attention on the now and not the then. The present seems to trump the future in most of our thinking. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul sets about to subvert this way of thinking. Maybe the church in Corinth is an exemplar of all societies down through the ages in which their main thinking is absorbed with the present rather than the future. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is setting about to revolutionize this way of thinking, of turning their minds away merely from the present uh, to help them think about the future. Most people view chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians 13 as the famous love chapter. It's a sort of portion of scripture that is uh, brought out for any state or national occasion, maybe for a, a royal wedding or for a, a commemoration of those who died, giving their lives in sacrifice in countless wars. Uh, this famous love chapter is viewed by many as a, a warm and soothing and inoffensive portion of God's word. But actually, if you read between the lines and begin to grasp Paul's real purpose in penning this chapter, it's of a much different sort. This is a very revolutionary chapter in the midst of a letter that is trying to sort out some of the problems that existed in the church in Corinth. This was a church that was full of spiritual pride. It felt that it had all the spiritual gifts that would commend them to God. They felt that they were, in a sense, first-class believers. And yet, if you dug a little deeper, there was all manner of jealousy and sin and imperfection in this church. And so what Paul is going to do with this chapter is to subvert their thinking, to expose them to their real selves and to show them that what they are putting their trust in is inadequate. And what they need to do is to come back to God and to experience his love transforming them so that they will be the people he desires them to be. And so how is it that Paul subverts this love chapter of pricking the bubble of their sense of being the bee's knees, as it were, spiritually? Well, as we look at verses 1 to 3, Paul sets out to revolutionize the thinking about what it means to be a Christian. And then in verses 4 to 7, he, as it were, strips us to the bone 
by exposing us to the test of love. And it's only as we come to the last part of the chapter in verses 8 to 13 are we given any hope, any hope of focusing, uh, by focusing on then rather than now. So let's look together then at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see just how revolutionary a word it is to that particular church. And perhaps a, a word of real examination for us as well. This is 1 to 3. Paul turns our thinking on its head. He does so by showing us three inadequate examples of how we live as Christians or how we do church together. The Corinthians thought of themselves as being super spiritual Christians. Uh, in a sense, full of wonderful, ecstatic experiences. But as uh, Paul reveals to us in this chapter, that is not everything. And so the first uh, picture he gives us is of the ecstatic worshipper. The one who is full of experiences. One who, in a sense, speaks of great uh, spiritual blessings being theirs. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, uh, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So what he's doing here is exposing one of the main planks that the Corinthians relied upon to support them as Uh, the real people of God. They had many amongst them who could speak of the ability to speak in tongues, to have a word of knowledge, uh, to have had ecstatic experiences of the Spirit coming upon them and in a sense transforming them and heightening their feelings and giving them this sense of euphoria. And so there was an ecstatic worshipper mentality among some of the believers in Corinth. They believed that they were super spiritual because of the ecstatic, instantaneous, uh, mystical experiences that they had partaken of because of their, uh, uh, their worship and their adoration in the church in Corinth. But then as we move on to verse 2, Paul then speaks of another group of people in the congregation who we might speak of as the profound prophets. These were the people who were proud of their knowledge of God. In a sense, they felt that their study of the scripture had given them a vast store of knowledge that they could apply to the present situation of the day. They were sound in their theology. They understood the times in which they were living. But even here, the Lord found fault with them. Yes, intellectually, their grasp of the Christian faith was sound. But there was something missing, even amongst this group. And then turning from 
these two outward experiences of great vitality, of great energy in the spiritual realm. Perhaps Paul then speaks of another way of thinking. These first two groups made much of the gifts of the Spirit, but not of the Spirit himself. And so some were perhaps thinking, you know, religion's not all about outward show and performance. It's really just about the practicality of getting on with living for God, of showing his love to others. And so Paul, in verse 3, exposes the what we might call the Stoic do-gooder, the person who is not interested in the flamboyant and the flashy and the outward performances of religion, but just wants to get on with loving others, perhaps sacrificing themselves for the sake of others, going without that others might have. And even, in a sense, being willing to sacrifice uh, their own life in order to see the advance of the kingdom. And Paul, as he looks at these three types of Christian, these three types of religious believers, he finds fault with each of them. What is it that is lacking in all these three cases? Well, the answer is love. What is lacking? What, in a sense, causes ecstatic worship to be a mere clanging cymbal or a banging gong? What is it that causes uh, knowledge and intellectual powers to be powerless? What is it that makes our good deeds empty and not acceptable to God, it is clearly the lack of love. If all these three things are done without love, then they find no acceptance with God. That's what he's saying here, isn't it? Uh, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You can be an ecstatic worshipper, but if love is missing, then you're missing the point. And then verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and if I have the faith to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. You see, even the ability perhaps to lead people to a certain goal This seems to be the implication of having the faith to move mountains, to actually remove any obstacles in order to lead people to a certain set goal. Even if you have these gifts, but like love, you are nothing. And then in verse 3, if I give away all that I have, if I give to charity, if I support lost causes, And even if I deliver my body to be burnt for the sake of the kingdom of God, but have not love, I gain nothing. And actually that's not a warm, uh, soothing uh, introduction to this particular chapter on the theme of love. Because it's pointing out to the church 
in Corinth. But although they were outwardly alive, outwardly very spiritually minded, deeply theological in their views, and willing to uh, put themselves out for the cause of God, even though they had this outward performance and the outward exercise of gifts, they themselves knew little of the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit, who provides love as a motivation for all that we ought to be as a people of God. And so it would have been very challenging, very revolutionary for these Corinthian Christians to be presented with these three facets of the religious life and to be exposed as frauds because they were performing outwardly without the inner reality of love. And then he goes on in the second section of this chapter in verses uh, 4 to uh, 7 to actually apply the test of love to their thinking. You see, what he's planning to do here is to expose them to the reality of just how far short they fall of God's requirement. Paul's next section seems to strip us to the bone as he expounds the real meaning of love. The problem with these super saints that we've been describing in verses 1 to 2 of this chapter is that, in a sense, they are not showing the uh, reality of love that he goes on to describe in verses 4 to 8, which shows us that love is completely beyond our ability in and of ourselves to live out such a life. I know some people have said a good way of understanding this middle section of 1 Corinthians 13 is for the Christians to replace the word love with your name. So I might read it as Stephen is patient and kind. Uh, Stephen does not envy or boast. He is not proud. He's not rude. And as I carry on reading like that, something rings hollow in my life and my experience. Because what this uh, section is all about is to just show us how far short we fall of what God wants from us. He does not want us to replace love in this chapter with ourselves. That is something that is yet to come about when we leave the now and enter into then. But if they were to replace love with anything in these few verses, verses 4 to 7, it ought to be with the word and the name Jesus. Because it is Jesus who is patient and kind. It is Jesus who does not envy or boast. It is Jesus who is not arrogant or rude. It is Jesus who does not insist on his own way. It is Jesus who is not irritable or resentful. It is Jesus 
who does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It is Jesus who bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. It is Jesus who never ends. It's wonderful to think about the baby in the crib at Bethlehem. But how much more mind-blowing is it to think of this babe grown to the age of 30 or 33 as he makes his way not out of the crib of Bethlehem but to the cross at Calvary on that first Easter. What is it that took Jesus to the cross at Calvary? It was the kind of attitudes and virtues that we've been reading about in verses 7 to 8, or sorry, 4 to 8. What was it that enabled Jesus not to seek his own will, but the Father's will? What was it that took Jesus uh, through the temptation in the wilderness? What was it that kept Jesus in those three years of public ministry, facing the journey to Jerusalem that he knew would end in his betrayal and his execution? The only explanation is that Jesus is the embodiment of love. It's not that we are love. It's not that love is an affection or a feeling that we have towards others. True love is personified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the test of love is not whether we live up to some sort of abstract description of love, but is how close are we related to Jesus Christ? How much does my life reflect the life that Jesus himself lived? Of course he is the ultimate, only begotten Son of God. But the whole purpose of Christianity is to restore us to the image of God. And what is the image of God? It is Jesus Christ, the perfect representation of his being. It is Jesus Christ who is the full radiance of the glory of God. That's what Paul is doing here in this middle section of 1 Corinthians 13, in applying this test of love to us, is ultimately to stop us in our tracks and to show us our great need of a saviour. I'm not love in these sort of categories. I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I do not uh, have an inkling of Uh, no inkling of envy in my life, by putting ourselves along that checklist, it really just drives us to our knees and shows us how much we need a saviour like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what this section does, it enables us to appreciate and to understand and grasp how much we need to receive the love of Jesus Christ and to begin to love 
as he has loved us. And so it will revolutionize our thinking when we begin to think less about now and be now centered and to be more than focused. Because just as Jesus was willing through his love to endure all things, knowing the glory that was set before him, so Jesus has promised that if we entrust our lives to him, if we turn over the control of our lives to him and allow him to rule and to direct us, what we are now will gradually be transformed into what we will sometime be then when he comes again. So that brings us to the the key section in the last part of 1 Corinthians 13, and particularly in verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. What this final section does for us, it brings us some measure of comfort because it tells us that if we are true believers, not just someone living an outward facade of following Jesus, but actually have come to that point of acknowledging our need of him and of in a sense, opening ourselves to his love so that his love comes and overwhelms our heart, it will then enable us to love others as he himself loves them. And of course, this is something that we only begin to do gradually in this life. It's like looking at a dim and ancient mirror where we just get a a slight glimpse of what it's meant to be. And so what Paul does in these last few verses, in verses 8 to 12, is to, in a sense, give us uh, three pictures, uh, show us three ways in which the then will become, will be much better than now. The here and now mentality that seems to Uh, uh, constrain most of us and to seem to be so real is actually not the true reality. The true reality is the future that is to be revealed at Christ's return. That is our certain and future hope. In verse 10, Paul describes this future as the perfect. Verse 10, he says... Uh, sorry, in verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When Christ comes in all his glory to finally transform his people into the people he intends us to be, he calls that future the perfect. And by perfection, He means that everything will be brought to its final goal. God's purposes for humankind will finally be perfected 
are made fully whole. The perfection will come. Are our bodies weakened? Are our relationships fractured? Are they not what they should be? Well, the coming of Christ is the answer to that. All that is imperfect, all that is broken, all that is fractured will be swept away as the perfection comes to pass. And then verse 11 gives us another view of our future. (coughs) The future here is viewed as our maturity. Now we are like children who must grow in wisdom and maturity to that point where they grow up to be the responsible and uh, complete person that God intended. Verse 11 there says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. The picture being that as we live in this world as believers, we are children who are gradually growing to maturity. And that maturity will be accomplished, will be reached when Christ comes and we shall see him as he is. And that's the third uh, view that Paul gives us of our future. That the heart of our future is to be face to face with the one who is the perfect representation of God and also the personification of love. It tells us there in verse 12, For now we see but in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The picture being that what we experience here and now is but a foretaste of the openness, the adoration and the intimacy that we will one day experience with Christ face to face. As John told us at the beginning of the service in his first letter, we are children of God. We have been bought with the love of Christ. But the full realisation of what it is to be loved by God is something we will only taste when Christ himself shall come. And we, as little children, as toddlers and youths, enter into our maturity and we see him face to face. Then we shall be the people that God intends us to be. And as we look at that as a conclusion to this chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, We see just how revolutionary it is. The Corinthians were set on being the best that they could be in their ear and now. But what Paul wants to do is to get them to focus on what shall be. And that is a fulfillment and the full expression and the full enjoyment of being part of the love of God. Yes, that is to be partly given birth to in the here and now. But it will be a foretaste, just an inkling 
of what we shall one day experience in the presence of God. So the encouragement is not to be so engrossed in the here and now, but to give time to think of the then, the then when we shall be with God face to face. Shall we conclude our worship this morning?